0: Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hose here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our past shows for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. My co host Matt Robeson is the author of a blog, a moreperfectunionforum.com, and he writes for The Alternate all kinds of interesting things about a deeper dive into politics. We tend to focus in this show on what's going on in and around Washington, D.C. And we're delighted today to welcome a special guest for a repeat visit to, off the record, a a good friend uh, and an influential person in Washington, Max Rickman, who is the president and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. Max is a former staff director of Senate Special Committee on Aging, 16-year veteran of Capitol Hill. Um, he uh, has testified before House committees and Senate committees. He's provided expert political and policy commentary during appearances on every available network because he's the guy who knows. He's participated in hundreds of congressional town halls across the country, been a featured speaker for numerous conferences on aging. He um, graduated cum laude from Harvard College, law degree from Georgetown University Law School. Uh, that's sometime in the past. And uh, Max and I got to know each other when I served in Congress. And I had the uh, privilege of helping to advance the important values and issues that the National Committee Uh, took up uh,
1: protecting
0: America's seniors by preserving Social Security and Medicare. So, Max, we're delighted to have you on the show.
1: Well, thank you very much, Paul. And let me just say it was our privilege at the Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare to work with you and, and advance some of the issues that are so important to seniors were then and still are. So thank you.
0: You bet. So, there have been, of course, rumblings um, uh, in Washington, D.C. about various people wanting to do uh, various things to Social Security and Medicare. Um, and one of the issues that is current that the committee is concerned about is a bill, uh, a bipartisan bill offered in the House that was co-signed by 58 members and a companion bill in the Senate offered by Mitt Romney called <laughs> the Trust Act, HR 4907. And we understand that uh, the committee has concerns about the bill, which on its face um, does not appear to be uh, something that uh, is, uh, is problematic. And in fact, Uh, our very own New Hampshire Representative Ann Custer, who holds the seat I held, is a co-sponsor. So we'd love to have you educate us about the bill and your concern. Um, uh, And one of the things we want to think about is, how does the bill and your concerns relate to the issue of national debt and our annual deficits?
1: Well, you know, as you know, Paul, since you were here in Washington for a time, uh, appearances can be deceiving. And this bill and the, the way it's uh, the language that is used to uh, frame it is deceiving. It, it really is uh, uh, gives one the impression that we should be uh, concerned about our federal debt, uh, which is skyrocketed. There should be better accountability, which is true. But the mechanism that the bill would use to address those concerns is it's an insidious, I think, uh, approach to uh, cutting the social security program. Uh, you mentioned your uh, Congresswoman Custer. I'm, I'm surprised that she's co-sponsoring this because her record on uh, senior issues, particularly social security, Medicare, Older Americans Act, has been very good. So, you know, I'm I'm hoping if she listens to this program, she might um, reconsider supporting the the proposal. What the bill does is set up a mechanism that fast tracks changes to social security through these so-called trust committees, circumventing the normal committees of jurisdiction, the Ways and Means Committee uh, in the House, the Finance Committee, and the Senate, and w- it, it's focused solely on uh, solvency of, of the program, doesn't take into account the adequacy of benefits. And in our opinion, any issue dealing, uh, legislative issue dealing with Social Security has to look at both solvency and the adequacy of benefits. Uh, this, is, this is not new. We have seen this movie before, efforts to um, circumvent uh, the regular order of Congress. And frankly, it's a way for uh, members of Congress to uh, uh, not have their fingerprints clearly on a piece of legislation that could lead to reductions in social security benefits. And uh, Paul, what worries me more these days is a letter was sent, bipartisan again, letter uh, to the leadership of the House uh, only a few days ago, saying, uh, urging the leadership of the Congress to insert this proposal, this trust act uh, in the next uh, coronavirus relief legislation. And I'm pretty sure we'll see some of that legislation Uh, very soon. And this would be an even uh, more insidious attack on the program, where people could vote for what is probably very important, necessary relief uh, to American citizens uh, during this pandemic. And in that will be buried, if this effort succeeds, this Trust Act. We'd be stuck with it.
2: You know, Max, can you give our listeners a sense of where does Social Security stand? Where does Medicare stand? Are they in trouble? Are they uh, solvent? Um, what What do the numbers look like overall? Should, should people be worried?
1: Well, not according to Max Richmond or even Paul Hodes, but uh, uh, the Social Security trustees, they issue a report every spring. They issued one uh, a couple of months ago. The program is able to pay Without any changes in law at all, the program is able to pay everybody all the benefits they're expecting for the next 15 years. And after that, again with no changes, there will be a shortfall of about 20 percent. Now, mind you, the Social Security average benefits is benefit is about $1,400 a month. We cannot uh, live with a reduction of 20 percent. That would be catastrophic. I don't think anybody wants that to happen Uh, and we as a national senior citizen organization the second largest advocacy group for seniors in the country we don't have our buried our heads buried in the sand we don't think you should never do anything the question is how do you fix that how do you deal with uh, that long-range solvency issues and there's a very good proposal uh, by uh, authored by a neighbor of yours senator Uh, Congressman uh, John Larson, uh, a companion um, in the Senate by uh, Senator Blumenthal, both of Connecticut, that would make the program sound for the rest of this century, improve the benefit structure, raise the minimum benefit, have a fair and more generous COLA, and does that principally by uh, adjusting the cap on wages subject to the payroll tax. Uh, Right now, there's a limit on FICA tax, $137,700. After that, no more payroll tax. Why? We would support eliminating that cap altogether. Politically, that's probably not realistic. Uh, The Larson proposal, which has about 211 co-sponsors, would keep the cap at what it is, start collecting uh, payroll tax again at $400,000 and above in wages. That's enough money into the program to have it solvent for the rest of the century. It's why it's called the Social Security 2100 Act and improve all of the benefits. That's the, that's the short version of the status of the program.
0: So what's interesting to me is um, that uh, we've got a Democratic majority in the House. One would think that at least historically, the Democratic majority would uh, would take care to protect both benefits uh, and solvency, uh, while addressing uh, the issue of solvency, which has been, you know, it's been it's been batted around for much longer than than I was ever around for for years before. From a political standpoint, um, uh, I you know it was always a it was kind of an axiom, uh, in a, in the political sense, to that that well, if you get specific about how to fix Social Security, you're touching the third rail of politics because you know you won't make anybody happy. If you touch that rail, you might as well uh, uh, you'll be a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and 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 away goes your political career because um, it's just too hot a topic ever to touch. So. So it sounds to me like you've, you're, you're, onto, you're onto something if, if a bill that looks like just, oh, it's just a process bill and it just makes things go faster and smoother so we don't have to spend all that time, we'll just have some automatic ways to deal with the solvency and it'll happen with this fast track committee. Um, uh, it gives uh, members of Congress an out to say, well, We've dealt with it, and it's all going to go through a special committee, and the special committee will deal with
1: it. Well, how about uh, accountability? How about members of uh, Congress who uh, committed to protecting the Social Security program, as an example, uh, vote that way uh, when when there's an opportunity to vote? I think think constituents need to know and that's why I'm grateful to be on your program. They need to know where members of Congress are uh, and is the voting, is the way they vote consistent with, with what they say at town hall meetings. And you know, I, I don't, I think I've, well, I've probably met a few members of Congress who are not supportive of social security. But for the most part, when I meet a member of Congress, uh, uh, senator, house member, and I tell them I'm with the committee to preserve Social Security and Medicare, they chime in, oh, well, I'm for that. But what does that mean? How do you vote? Uh, will you vote to protect the program? Will you vote to protect benefits and to, and to figure out a way to make sure the program is not there just for today's beneficiaries, but, but well into the future? And I, I want to point out something that a lot of uh, people are not familiar with or don't fully appreciate. Social security is not just for seniors. A third of social security benefits go to non-retired workers, spouses, survivors, disabled. Millions of children get by in life because social security is there for them uh, in the event they had a working parent who died young or became disabled. And I have been fortunate lately uh, to be able to do town hall meetings with new young members of Congress, uh, at and, the, and they're being held at universities, and a lot of students come. And when I tell them, look, if you are a 27-year-old worker with a spouse and two children, you have right now—never mind when you retire when you're 67—you have right now about half a million dollars in value of life and disability insurance through the social security program. They're they're astounded. They they didn't know that. And they often don't find out until maybe something bad happens in a family and someone will say, we ought to look at social security. So it's not just seniors, it's uh, everyone uh, has an interest in making sure this program is sound uh, well into the future.
0: And Matt Robeson, we have about a minute or so left, and I know you had a question about the relationship of the bill to deficits.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've started to hear a lot of language out of Washington about concerns for further spending to um, arrest the economic decline that we're experiencing. In the minute or so we have left, Max, what are your thoughts? You know, Social Security, Medicare, these are long-term programs. What are your thoughts about um, how concerned we should be about-
1: Rising deficits. First, first of all, Social Security is completely self-financed and so is the Medicare Part A program, the hospital part. Dedicated revenue stream through the payroll tax, doesn't add a penny to the deficit. The uh, Social Security trust fund has a reserve of 2.9 trillion dollars. There's no deficit there. It's been, it's been set up to bring in more money, to have a reserve, to pay the benefits for those people who started retiring uh, the baby boomers in in the last couple of decades. So they're they're totally unrelated. And what I would say to those people who all of a sudden are uh, worried about deficits, where were those people when they vote, those very same people, when they voted about a year and a half ago for trillions of dollars in tax cuts, favoring mostly the wealthy and corporate America, added a huge amount to our federal debt. They were mute, didn't hear a peep from them. Now all of a sudden, oh, we've got all these debts. We've, uh, the federal debt has grown so dramatically. We ought to look at entitlements. We ought to look at entitlement reform. First of all, Social Security is not an entitlement. It's an earned benefit. And an entitlement reform language is a euphemism, we ought to cut benefits.
0: Folks, you heard it here from Max Rickman, the President and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, talking about the Trust Act, which seems on its face to be something that you might want to support, but underneath, it looks like it messes too much with the way we need to address both solvency and benefits in social security. Max, thanks for joining us.
1: Good to be with you, Paul.
0: It's off the record with Max Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL and FM. We'll be back after this word from the good folks who keep this station humming on beer. Don't go away. Welcome back to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can find us anywhere you are in the great wide world. And in this portion of our show, we're very pleased to welcome Chase Hageman and Chase you're now an exalted high guru at the Concord <laughs> Coalition. What's, what, what are you doing now? You're, are you running the whole thing yet?
3: No, no, just a handful of us running the whole thing, apparently. Um, I, I was promoted this year, so thank you for that, from the New England Regional Director to the National Grassroots and Outreach Director. So now I'm basically taking what I was doing in New England across the country.
0: Well, Chase and I have, in full disclosure, worked together. I am on the advisory board of the Concord Coalition, which was famously begun by uh, former New Hampshire senator, Walter Rudman, and Paul Saunders, if I've got it right. And I would
3: say Warren. Warren Rudman. Warren Rudman. <laughs> what did I say? You said Walter. That's OK. Oh, it's like I mean, Warren's cousin. Warren
0: Rudman. I might You know, it's COVID brain. What can I do? I, I agree. And. And uh, Concord Coalition is focused on issues of financial responsibility, fiscal responsibility, uh, issues of debts and deficits. And these days, nobody seems to be paying any attention to debts and deficits. It's like we've turned on the tap. We want the water to flow as fast as it can. And um, deficits are uh, are something that, that, that nobody nobody really cares about oh, so you know
3: congressman kind of, <laughs> go ahead so,
0: so i'll tell i'll tell you i mean i'm, I'm being provocative i I'm, know you are i'm being argumentative and provocative on purpose we just we and to bring you up to a little speed we just spoke with max rickman who is the president and ceo of the national committee to preserve social security and medicare we were talking uh, to him about an act which would fast-track consideration of changes to social security without going through regular order, ostensibly to address the issue uh, uh, of concern about the nation's rising debt. So where are we, and, and what's, a poor, what's a poor politician to do about debts and deficits?
3: Well, if you're like any other politician, not a whole lot right now. <laughs> there, look, I'm being pr- provocative, too. Uh, so where, where we are is it's complicated. So to your point, there's not a lot of attention being paid to the national debt and our annual deficits for good reason. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're officially in a recession that began in February, and the Conquer Coalition has long stated that in times like these, you bring the full weight of the federal government to bear and you do what you need to do to help people and to uh, spur on economic growth. So that's not the issue from our perspective. Um, the, the issue is, is the long-term trajectory. Where we were headed before we got in the pandemic and where we're likely still headed afterward, after we get through this, after people get healthy, after there's a vaccine, after the economies are fully opened up in states across the nation, we had a structural deficit. Uh, I think this year uh, the CBO the Congressional Budget Office is projecting that we'll have a 3.7 trillion dollar budget deficit which has never occurred in our nation's history uh, and then next year would be still a little over two trillion I believe I've heard even larger estimates I've heard that we'll be north of four depending on what Congress does uh, in, in additional pieces of legislation uh, in response to the pandemic. Uh, but again, that response, uh, the, the, the effort to spur on economic growth and provide relief and aid, that's not the issue. We had trillion-dollar deficits built into the budget before we even got to this point. And there are a lot of reasons for that, some political, some policy, and some demographics. And I'm sure you can ask me all about those. We might even get into a little bit talking about Social Security and Medicare. But the reality is, our national, our fiscal picture is unsustainable long term. We already have twenty-six trillion dollars in total debt. Uh, looking, at, <laughs> looking at where we are right now, and we're expected to add thirteen to fourteen trillion more over the next decade. And these are some incredibly unprecedented numbers that are, frankly, hard to relate to or even fathom.
0: Uh, I can't. Tell so
3: Chase, go ahead, Matt. Chase, maybe you can. Tell us a little bit about
2: why deficits matter, how they for our listeners, how does running such a big deficit hurt the average American family? What does it do? Um, And and I guess there's a follow up to that, which is we have these massive deficits that we plan for right now. Interest rates are so low. Money is cheap. So does it have the same effect to add so much to the deficit at a time like this?
3: Well, it's a good it's a good point, and I'll I guess I'll address it going backwards. So right now, with incredibly low interest rates, the effect is um, a little bit dampened. Uh, you don't feel it as much right now because rates are so low. The issue is what happens long term, uh, depending on what happens with monetary policy or how Congress responds. You could have inflation issues, uh, but in, in reality, the, the the long and again, I'm going to keep coming back to the long term picture because these the answers are different based on what's going on in the short term and what's going to be happening long term. But long term, it can slow economic growth, it increases the debt burden to future generations, it comes with a higher interest cost and uh, that, by that I mean the cost of servicing that debt, which is in the hundreds of billions of dollars every year and and albeit we have incredibly low interest rates right now, that may not always be the case. So. The larger our debt and the, the more we're adding to it, the more that cost is going to grow. And at one point, interest was the fastest growing portion of the federal budget. It has slowed a little bit in part because of interest rates, but I bet it's probably catching up again because we're adding so much so quickly. Um, so again, going back to how it affects the, the average person, uh, frankly, the average person or the, or, or the public may not notice some of the effects right away because it's not like you're looking at this and you can draw a straight line from a federal budget, you know, decision all the way down to your personal wallet. But eventually it gets there and it usually comes in the form of of taxes. Usually it can come in the form of a lack of prioritization in the federal budget, uh, a lack of planning in the budget process. For example, uh, because of some crowding out that's already occurring in the federal budget, only about a third of the federal budget is controlled by Congress on an annual basis, which means you know, 33 cents or less for every dollar that's being spent, Congress has a say over. The rest is all automatically uh, occurring as a result of of written law for some major and important mandatory spending programs. Um, But I I have a a son, (laughs) a new, almost eight-month-old, and so I think of these issues generationally. It's not just about what we can get away with right now. It's about the long-term ramifications of some of these decisions and some of these trends. And the reality is we don't have the same economy we did 30, 40 years ago. We have different spending priorities already established in the budget, and we have less of an ability to plan for the future and to set up future generations for success.
0: So let me ask you this question. I I don't think it's overly provocative, but um, as you were just talking about, uh, much of the federal budget, much of the spending on an annual basis is on autopilot. Mandatory spending programs, one of the big ones is social security. And uh, that is a mandatory spending program. Most folks have very little idea of the actual uh, makeup of the pie chart of the federal budget and just how big a slice of pie uh, Social Security and Medicare mandatory programs on autopilot take up every year. Now, in, in that context, um, when uh, asked a question about deficits, uh, the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare says about Social Security, well, number one, where were all those uh, whiners when they passed trillions of dollars of tax cuts for the rich people, number one, and number two, there's a trust fund for social security, which has $2.9 trillion in it. That as of now, social security will just keep going as it, as it is going for at least 15 years. And there are ways to, to tweak it, to, to fix it. So wh- you know, my question is, why is the Concord Coalition harping on social security as one of the problems uh, in creating our structural deficit when they've got a trust fund that takes care of it all?
3: I will say, I'm glad you said one of, because we don't sit back and harp on Social Security as the reason for all of our fiscal policy ills. It's just one of the factors. Just as tax revenue is one of the reasons why we have federal budget deficits and how we probably need some bipartisan tax reform to remedy some of that. I think before the pandemic hit, we were down to about 16 or 17 percent of GDP and tax revenue, and we normally were around 18, 19%, so we were already trending in the wrong direction there, and spending, as you can imagine, was trending in the opposite direction, uh, well above historic norms. But as for Social Security specifically, uh, and Max, I think it was, uh, yeah. for the, the committee, uh, is right, there is a trust fund. Uh, it does have a couple trillion dollars in it right now, but the issue isn't, well, actually, there is an issue right now. It's already... Uh, Based on the number, the amount of beneficiaries and the amount of benefits being paid out, Social Security is already running a cash deficit. So it's already drawing on that trust fund to pay its current commitments in terms of benefits to existing beneficiaries. That beneficiary pool is expected to grow. Uh, So the cost of Social Security is expected to grow. And as the trust fund draws down, which will happen very rapidly, eventually you'll hit a point where... You'll see benefit cuts, not because bad politicians are deciding to harm current retirees or those about to retire, but the way Social Security is structured is it's pretty much limited to what's brought in through the payroll tax and what exists in the trust fund. And until about 2010, there was a surplus in that trust fund, so we really didn't have this issue. It was always decades off in the distance we'll have to deal with reforming this system. And I'll be honest every politician has to know or should know that Social Security is in need of reform. And we're not sitting here saying you should you know, wipe out benefits and, and hurt those who are retired or about to retire, but we are saying some real reform needs to occur here. The benefit cuts you could see could be on in line of 20 to 25% across the board as those trust funds are depleted. Before the pandemic, the trust funds, uh, their own trustees put these numbers out there. The actuaries crunching the numbers for the system said As a whole, there's two trust funds, and they were expected to be exhausted around 2034, I believe was the number before the pandemic. Now, there are experts who are saying because of lost revenue as a result of the pandemic, that that date has been bumped up to within the next decade. So we're, we're now talking about a very near timeline, and the longer you wait to make some of the changes that are necessary, the more painful those changes are going to be, the more drastic they're going to be. I mean, you, if we wait till, you know, the eve of Social Security's trust funds exhausting, you're talking about probably a massive spike in the payroll tax to cover the 20 to 25% benefits that would, would need to be made up for the, the loss in the trust fund. So it is, it is a complicated political issue, but most um, policy wonks would say it's not a terribly complicated policy issue because there's a known menu. To fix social security. It's just the third rail of politics and no one's willing to talk about it or act on it.
0: Well, you're echoing, you're echoing my <laughs> segment in the first segment because I remembered my, my, uh, my time in Congress and as a candidate with uh, good advice from Matt Robeson, my co-host, who was then my chief of staff, about getting too close to the third rail. Because I always had all kinds of ideas about what I wanted to do to fix Social Security, but I don't. I think I managed to avoid uh, avoid having to tell anybody any of them, and just said, "Yeah, we are, we should fix it." And uh, good. That's a smart. <laughs> well, mind. too many
3: too many members of Congress are being as successful as you were in that effort.
0: Yeah, well, I, I had <laughs> the best advice. Matt Robeson was one of the cleverest people. To give uh, to give advice on on that kind of issue, but I will say this: it's it sounds to me like Concord Coalition and Max Rickman of the National Secure, National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare are are on the same page about the need uh, sooner rather than later to address the structural deficits to deal with the. Coming shortfall in the Social Security trust fund in a responsible way, uh, and to return uh, to uh, fiscal responsibility um, in our budgeting, in our budgeting process. And uh, yeah. the challenges are big, but the, the the tools are out there.
3: Right. Now you hit the nail on the head. And I don't I don't know Max personally, um, but based on how you characterize what he had to say, I, w- I would agree that. Tackling Social Security is an important issue, uh, doing it in a fiscally responsible way and also a morally responsible way.
0: This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet. We've been talking with Chase Hageman, who is a major potentate guru with the (laughs) Concord Coalition. He is one of the guys who runs the show and is a very smart person. So, Chase, thanks for joining us. It was a very interesting discussion.
3: Always a pleasure, Paul, and pleasure to meet you, Matt. We'll be
0: back after this. Word from the good people who keep our station on the air. Don't go away. And we're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And for this final segment of our show, it's just Matt and me going away. What, What a show it's been. Interesting discussion with Max Rickman of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. About the Trust Act and what's really what it's really about, and Chase Hageman about debts and deficits as we face uh, the prospect of even more relief from Congress for COVID nineteen. We've got a national debt that has that whose hole has deepened considerably. We're looking at it. annual deficit in the unthinkable amount of three point seven. Trillion dollars. My mind reels at that number of zeros. I can't even imagine it. It's like it's like when I was a kid thinking about uh, infinity or thinking about the distance to Jupiter. I mean, you can't. It's hard to grapple with the size with the size of of that annual annual uh, debt um, annual deficit. Um, What's your takeaway, Matt?
2: Well, you're right. When you get into numbers this big, it really begins to sound like an Austin Powers number, right? It's like 70 (laughs) kajillion dollars, you know, and it it begins to really lose all meaning. You know, it's, it's interesting. What, what you start to worry about when you talk about this kind of debt deficit spending, um, you start to worry about inflation, which is something that both of our guests have brought up. And, you know, you're talking about, um, (laughs) Talking about how it all begins to sound like monopoly money, what happened in Zimbabwe was that they started printing money, right? They started spending at an unsustainable rate uh, in 2008, and they literally hit an annualized rate of inflation of 96 trillion percent. Now, you might ask, how much is a sextillion? I don't know. Uh, There's not enough math in my schooling background to tell you the answer. But look, I, you know, I, I do think it's an interesting discussion because we have hit what economists look at when they talk about deficits and debt is the ratio of how much debt we hold, how much we built up over the years to how much we produce in our gross domestic product every year. And right now that ratio is above 100%. It's, it's creeping up on 110%. We have more debt than we produce every year. And the World Bank has studied this, and they find that economies that stay sustainably above a ratio of just 77% have a marked penalty that they pay in terms of economic growth. So that's the argument that a guest like Chase would make, that for his eight-month-old son, this is a big problem. In the long term, we are going to pay an economic penalty eventually. But there is another emerging school of thought that's popular in some progressive circles including The, the economist uh, associated with the Sanders campaign um, and they argue no deficits don't matter uh, debts really don't matter as long as you're somewhat careful about avoiding inflation really you can print as much money as you need to invest in your economy you'd rather it be in you know real palpable investments not just year-to-year consumption but it's really not an issue for a country like ours that prints its own currency. So there is a little bit of a debate to be had, um, and it's, uh, the stakes are extremely high.
0: Well, I'm no economist, and I, and I did a bad job at playing one on television when uh, folks asked me, because I sat on the Financial Services Committee way back when. Um, uh, I managed to sound coherent with a very little bit of knowledge, which. Uh, is always a dangerous thing and you're much better versed in the economics. But I can tell you that from my on the ground, ear to the ground perspective, it appears to me that as a consumer of uh, basic goods, like food, for example, one of the most basic of consumption goods, prices are going up and prices are going up quite significantly. And I'm wondering whether or not uh, the folks who you follow, the economists and the smart people, see that as a dangerous harbinger of coming inflation, tied to uh, what's going on on the on the on the macro level, so to speak, of of the debts and deficits.
2: So the current inflation rate in the U.S. is very low. Um, it's 0.1 percent, 0.1 percent. That's that's incredibly low, um, and that's because we're in such an economic crater. Right? There's this uh, trade-off. Um, you know, overheated economy, high inflation; cratering economy, low inflation. Uh, like you, I've observed uh, individual items where the supply chains are very hard to um, rejigger at a time of different consumption patterns. You know, so we can't buy tofu. Not to sound like an arugula-eating liberal, but yeah, we can't buy tofu in the supermarket these days. Um, A lot of people are having trouble getting toilet paper. That has a lot to do with supply chains. Prices are going up. Yeah, but both Um, of those. But across the board,
0: start with tea. So there must be. Right. Sorry. That's
2: right. That's right. right. So you know, so inflation is not an across-the-board concern. Now, inflation is a definite concern in a long-run sense for economists for a whole bunch of grab bag reasons. Um, you know, it's, it's very bad for saving money. It's very bad for investment. Um, it ends up really uh, messing up your, your long-term economic trajectory. But, you know, look, I, I think that right now, the way the International Monetary Fund Managing Director, um, Kristalina Georgieva, put it, is economies should be spending what they need to, but keep the receipts. You know, she's kind of taking a midpoint position that um, you really should be spending right now to rescue your economy, and more important, the people that pick up your economy who are suffering right now. Um, but that doesn't mean that you should go all the way to saying, look, we just think spending is irrelevant. We'll just spend what we want. We don't care. We're never going to have to pay the piper. She's not sold on that, clearly. A lot of economists are not sold on that proposition either. Um, you know, and that seems to be about where the, the mainstream of economists is landing right now.
0: Well, I think it's uh, it's it's no mystery that uh, folks are are hurting. Uh, there's been um, a lot of job loss. The most recent job numbers seem to provide a small glimmer of hope. Uh, retail sales in our consumer economy uh, rebounded in May from the low ebb of April. Um, many states are reopening, including right here in New Hampshire, uh, while the epidemiologists are concerned about a second wave, and Dr. Fauci uh, says we're still in the first wave. so. We may yet see uh, more knocks to the both local and national economy, and more, more, and continued need for uh, congressional action to, to 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 help people. And it's we're in a time of great uncertainty, but in general, I think the general consensus is, if ever there was time uh, for kind of emergency spending, and the time when. Uh, deficits are unavoidable. It's a national emergency of the kind that we are in the midst of experiencing. Let me just turn our attention to uh, some landmark Supreme Court decisions which um, I'm really interested in your perspective on. This week uh, we have had two remarkable Supreme Court decisions. One, uh, Republican appointed Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee, led a court decision, which uh, basically prohibited job discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, sexual preference um, and sex, uh, which was a huge victory for the LGBTQ community and all who care about civil rights. It was a a clear and logical decision that many thought would never come out of a majority conservative Supreme Court. The second decision, equally stunning, although it was a procedural decision more than on the merits, prevented uh, the Trump administration from eliminating DACA, the the DREAM Act, and and sent, sent it back for a tortuous time in the lower courts. Uh, And that was led by Chief Justice Roberts siding with uh, the liberal justices on the court. This to me is a watershed moment. it's It's the kind of Supreme Court week I never thought we'd see. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how did this happen? How did these two conservative judges side with the liberal majority on two of the hottest button social issues facing the nation.
2: It's very hard to say, and like you, obviously I celebrate the uh, legal findings that um, protect young people who came to this country, um, were brought to this country and uh, deserve to be here and stay here. and. Uh, the the finding of uh, equality and equal protection under the law um, for LGBT Americans. Um, You know, closer Supreme Court watchers than I, like Linda Greenhouse the New York Times, have long opined that Chief Justice John Roberts is very sensitive to the long-term positioning, credibility, and legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And I think maybe there is a whip in the 5 4 decision um, on uh, DACA um, of protecting that position, much in as in his ruling on preserving the ACA. All I can say is that I, I'm not sure. I'm not inside his head. All I can say is that from a political standpoint, Republicans should be breathing a big sigh of relief about these rulings. Um, I have no idea where they stand on the merits of them. But politically, Right now, Republican enthusiasm and, and support for President Trump are both extremely high. Democrat, you know, approval for, for Trump is about 90%. Enthusiasm, about 83% to vote for Republicans. For Democrats, enthusiasm to come out and vote, much lower, mid-50s in polling. And so you can imagine a counterfactual case, a world where these rulings have gone the other way. This is the kind of issue, a, a set of issues, that can really mobilize um, groups of Americans who uh, would be outraged, um, rightfully so. So you know, I, I, again, I'm not sure what the underlying thinking, what the calculus was, whether it was all legal, whether there's a political whiff in these. But for my money, Republicans, from a pure political standpoint, should be relieved uh, about the consequences of the court ruling uh, in both of these cases.
0: Well, that's a fascinating point to end, uh, end, end on, but, and it's not one uh, because you're much smarter than I am that I would have really appreciated. Um, and you're right. I mean, we have talked a lot about the upcoming politics and the upcoming presidential politics, as well as the races for uh, the US Senate and what they mean in, in various places. And in a way, uh, now that you say it, it sounds like these decisions, well, perhaps grounded on pure legal theory, have the, have the uh, fortuitous um, effect of taking the air out of some anger balloons that Democrats otherwise could have used to mobilize substantial constituencies in those who care deeply about Uh, civil rights and social justice for LGBTQ uh, citizens and uh, the uh, Latin American community, which uh, is um, uh, so focused on uh, what has happened to the DREAM Act, at least focused recently, and on overall what happens with immigration. Now, some say this may put immigration back into the presidential game in a way that it wasn't before. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but uh, let's hope that democratic enthusiasm manages to find itself in a good place because we need it. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM. We'll be back to wrap up after this. Don't go over We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hoes on WKXLAM and FM streams live over the internet at www.linjenockradio.com and a podcast on Google, Stitcher and iTunes that you can find us anywhere, day or night, anywhere in the whole wide world. Matt, we, um, we, we had a pretty interesting show as sometimes happens here. Uh, Max Rickman from the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, getting us deep into the weeds of Congressional uh, legislation about uh, an act which appears kind of plain vanilla on its surface, and a a bill that apparently is supported by our very own Representative Annie Custer. Um, And uh, surprisingly, according to Max, she supports a bill which may undercut Social Security out of alleged concerns about deficits, and uh, he can't figure out uh, why she's supporting it and why they're putting this bill in. And then we had a talk with Chase Hegeman of the Concord Coalition about debts and deficits and how bad the situation is. Um, What's your takeaway about Social Security, Medicare and deficits?
2: Do what we need to do now, keep the receipts.
0: Do what we need to do now, Keep a folder with the receipts, people. It's the kind of thing I should be doing with my taxes, which reminds me, taxes are due July 15, as I recall. I think we better get to it. Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, we're signing off uh, for Off The Record on WKXL AM and FM. Thanks to all the good folks who are listening. Thanks to our sponsors. And we'll see you next week with more Off The Record.